Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. Every night I tuck my son into bed. Anyone who's a parent knows that's the sweetest time of your day. And every night when I tuck my son in, I thought, Justin's not tucking his children in tonight. I swear on my little girl's life. I well, don't. okay, well, let me stop there. When people start swearing, that's automatic that you're lying, brother. You know, Joe White, you know, the, the light wonder. I said, this guy's full of baloney. Welcome to episode three. Okay, let's go directly to Stroop's Stoop. In episode two, you heard from Gary Allen Stroop about how he was sitting on his front porch about three o'clock in the morning, looking out into the gloom. It was June 2006. Stroop said he believed he saw the figure of Justin Chapman limping away shortly before a fire lit up the night sky. Let's talk about Stroop for a minute. He was 26 and way down on his luck. He was on probation for a cocaine conviction and about nine months earlier, was evicted from his home. In June 2006, he was living with his sister on Marchman Street in Bremen, Georgia. Marchman is one street over from Sharp Street. That's where Justin Chapman's duplex was. You'll recall that Chapman was convicted of arson and murder for burning down his own house, a fire that killed his neighbor on the other side of the duplex, 79-year-old Alice Jackson. Stroop's testimony was critical to the prosecution's case. In his closing argument, Charles Rooks, the assistant district attorney, called Stroop an eyewitness and said his testimony was very credible. But what could Stroop really see from that stoop? On the witness stand, questioned by Prosecutor Rooks, Stroop said he had stepped out to smoke a cigarette. Did you see anybody else while you were out there smoking a cigarette? Uh, when I went out, there's a guy on the Right about 10 feet from the corner of the car lot, right there on the corner, and went around the building. There's a car lot at the end of Marchman Street, and that helps us pinpoint how far Stroop was from the person he claims to have seen. My editor, Richard Hallex, and I drove to Bremen with a tape measure. From Stroop's stoop to where Stroop claimed he saw Chapman was a maximum of 217 feet. The person Stroop saw could have been no closer than 200 feet. As we prepared to take those measurements, Miguel Santos appeared at the front door. He lives here now with his girlfriend and four dogs. One is Zoe, a German shepherd that, get this, weighed 68 pounds and was about to give birth to 15 puppies when Santos and his girlfriend took her in. In other words, the dog was half-past dead with protruding ribs and a distended belly. 
Today, Zoe is a magnificent 100-pound specimen that Santos loves to distraction. Santos and Zoe understandably wondered what we were doing out there in the yard. But the more we told Santos about the case, the more intrigued he became. Get this. Santos is a former army sniper trained to see things in the dark. For our experiment, we waited for the sun to go down. Miguel and I stood on the stoop while Richard strolled down to the 200-foot mark and waited for my cue. All right. Ready. Well, the guy down the street could have been Richard Halleck's or Richard Gere. And trust me, you would never mistake the two for each other. There's no way. I'm an ex-military man, and there's no way that I could identify who that is. Right. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, all you see is uh, a silhouette. Even, even now. He's walking toward can't. us right now. He's walking up the street. I tell Santos that Stroop initially told police that the person he saw had wavy hair. There's no way that you could even tell what kind of hair he's got. Wow. Okay. There's, there's no way. that There's no way. Sorry. <laughs> well, this was not difficult for us to do, but apparently no one ever did it. The jury that convicted Chapman never heard that Stroop could not possibly have seen what he swore he saw. There's no way. After this podcast, come meet Miguel Santos and Zoe at AJCBreakdown.com. We'll delve into this in much greater detail later, but Stroop had a very strong inducement to testify as he did. We can't ask him about it now because he died a few years ago, but it was pretty well known at the time that there was a $10,000 reward for information that helped convict the person responsible for killing Ms. Alice. As it turned out, Stroop would split the ten grand with one other person just a few weeks after the trial. In prior episodes, we told you about a fight outside Chapman's house just hours before the fire. William Paul Chives had shown up at Chapman's door around midnight, drunkenly calling out Chapman. Chapman, according to Chives, had called Chives' aunt a red-headed crack whore. Chapman didn't deny it. Instead, he pulled out a pistol and beat Chives with it, knocking him to the ground. Here's what Chives told the jury. He is being questioned by Chapman's lawyer, a public defender named Jan Hankins. Did you get on the telephone while you were there? Yes, ma'am. What did you say? I called my brother because I thought I was just need some help, considering the fact there was more than one of them there. What did you say to your brother? Said he must not know who he's playing with. Cause by the time I said that, Justin pulled a pistol out on me. And uh, I hung up the phone then. Me being drunk, I didn't run. I stood there, you know what I'm saying? I kept running out to him, he pissed away. Hankins had two main goals. First was to show that Chapman couldn't have committed the crime during the time frame the police provided. She also wanted to show that someone else set the fire. This is where Chives comes in. She called Chives to the stand and got him to make a stunning admission. Weeks before the fire that killed Miss Alice, Chives had accompanied a relative who tried to burn down a house in nearby Carroll County. Chives' buddy wanted to exact revenge on a guy who'd beat up a former girlfriend. Chives denied any involvement in that fire or the fire that killed Miss Alice. And he couldn't have set the fire at Chapman's duplex, He had just been arrested after brawling with Chapman and was in jail when the fire was set. Here is Chives being questioned by Prosecutor Charles Rooks. Well, did you have anything to do with the house that burned on Sharp Street? No, I didn't have nothing to do with it burning. Okay. Well, did you do anything in terms of calling anybody 
to retaliate against Justin Chapman after he struck you in the head with a gun. No, sir. But Hankins' message was clear. Had Chives' phone call to his brother before the fight brought other Chives' associates to Chapman's duplex with gasoline and a match? So that was goal number one for Hankins. Divert suspicion from her client and cast it on someone else. Now let's talk about goal number two, the alibi testimony. After the fight with Chives, Chapman, his wife, and four kids left the house and went to the home of Stephen and Brandy Hughes, about 10 minutes away. Brandy had a clear recollection of what time they had left Chapman's duplex. Here's what she told police the day after the fire. What time did you think y'all left there? It was 2 o'clock on the Brandy just said she knew for a fact it was 2 a.m. The fire began about an hour later. The first 911 call came in at 3.18 a.m. What Brandy Hughes then told police sounded like the perfect alibi for Justin Chapman. When they asked her, how long was it before you went to bed after you got home that evening? Her reply was, mm, I just an hour and a half, I guess. Well, that would have made it impossible for Chapman to have set the fire because Brandy also said Chapman only left her house after she had gone to bed. So he was at the trailer when the fire was set, according to her story. Chapman's wife, Christy, and son, Austin, provided even stronger alibi testimony. Christy said she went to bed around 4 a.m. in a spare bedroom with the two youngest kids, and Justin then laid down on a couch in the living room. Austin said he couldn't sleep and said he was with his father at the used trailer during the time the house burned. Austin was just a child when he testified at trial. He was 17 when he said this to me. And I remember them asking me, did your dad set the fire? Where was your dad? I was like, my dad was with me, because I never left my dad. That night? Never. Chapman and his children showed up at the burned-out shell of his house at 5 a.m. That much is undisputed. We asked Austin if he remembered the scene. Yeah, I do. I'm sorry. You good? My dad was on his knees, and he was saying, what am I going to do? What am, what am I going to do with my family? The fire was everywhere. I ran to my dad, and he's like, go back to the car, go back to the car. And I was like, no. There are fire trucks everywhere? Fire trucks, cars, water hoses. But the local police didn't buy the scene of Chapman weeping on his knees. They believed, and the jury accepted that Chapman had left the U's home earlier on his own, hurried back to his own home, set the fire, and then raced back to the trailer. Why would he do that? Prosecutors said Chapman burned down his duplex because he was angry at his landlady. She had told him to start looking for another place to live because the apartment was too small for his family. During a trial, every defense attorney has to make a decision whether their client should take the stand to testify in his own defense. Ultimately, the defendant makes the call. But defense attorneys usually counsel against it. And the judge always instructs the jury that the defendant does not have to testify. The judge also tells jurors not to hold that decision against the defendant. But juries always wonder. Chapman didn't testify at his trial. And in fact, jurors never heard his voice before they passed judgment on him. Hankins would later explain why she didn't want him on the stand. It's just a bad practice. If a client doesn't absolutely need to take the stand, that you're better off not putting them there because 
Um, keep in mind, a, a trial is a live performance, if you will, or again, like a baseball game. Now, if you've got someone you really don't want to get injured that you really, really need for the next game, you might consider not putting them in the game there because someone's going to attack them. I mean, by definition, the DA is going to come in and cross-examine them, and you can't always predict what the DA is going to ask them. You can't predict their answers. And also, Justin, you know, he had a kind of an attitude, which he has lost over time, but at that time he was kind of cocky, and I don't see this being helpful. Hankins spent most of a day presenting her defense of Chapman. She believed she had achieved her two main objectives, establishing an alibi for Chapman and drawing suspicion away from her client and toward cohorts of William Paul Chives. Hankins was confident of winning an acquittal, in part because she thought she'd done her best with what she had to work with. But it was mainly because she thought the prosecution case was so flimsy, riddled with reasonable doubt. After calling 11 witnesses... She rested. Closing arguments are the part of a trial that is most akin to theater. But closing arguments have been romanticized in the movies as the moment in which a great attorney wins or loses her case. That's really the wrong way to look at them. The closing argument is the capstone on a case that has already been built. If the jury doesn't buy the foundation you could probably make the most brilliant closing ever and still not win. But by the time you stand up and talk to the jury for the last time, you should have some jurors already on your side. And this is not the time to make converts. It's time to reassure the faithful. In his closing, Prosecutor Rooks had the opportunity to look the jury in the eye and hold Chapman responsible for killing an innocent, helpless old lady. And he took it. Rooks was forceful. He was methodical. He did his best to stir the jury to anger. Not only did she die in that fire, she died a horrific death. She was burned alive. Rooks relied largely on his two key witnesses, the jailhouse snitch Joe White, who testified Chapman had confessed to him during a prayer meeting, and Gary Allen Stroop, the witness from the stoop. Rooks painted Chapman as arrogant and cold-blooded. He said he didn't mean to kill her, but that she was better off. That's the mind of somebody who would do this. That's what kind of mind it takes to do this kind of crime. Here, Rooks gave jurors a nice, neat summary of his case. He told people that he did it. He was seen by a neighbor immediately after the fire was set. That is how simple the case is. In her closing, Jan Hankins told the jury that nothing about the state's case made any sense. Why would Chapman burn down his own house with all of his stuff inside when he had no renter's insurance? What are some of the reasons, the reasons for doubt in this case? Justin wasn't there when this occurred. It makes no sense for Justin to burn his own house, according to, to common sense and according to the fire investigators. Someone else had a motive. Someone else had just participated in an arson three weeks earlier that was identical to this one and is a person who likes to get revenge when he feels slighted. Those are all reasons for doubt. Ms. Alice was a kindly, elderly woman, she said. Who would want to kill such a person? Then she pointed at the credibility of the state's witnesses. Who could believe them? Hankins pleaded with jurors to take their obligations seriously. Justin Chapman's future hangs in the balance right now. On behalf of, of him and, and 
all the defense. I ask you to seriously think about the issues in this case. Consider the failure of the state to persuade you in this case. You often hear people speculate about how long the jury takes in its deliberations. If they come back right away, that means they've obviously found him guilty. Likewise, if the jury is out for days, that means an acquittal must be coming, right? Here's the truth from someone who has covered dozens of trials. Nobody knows. A short deliberation might mean that the prosecutor did such a terrible job that the jury decides it has to acquit. A long deliberation might simply mean that 11 jurors are ready to convict, while juror number 12 is holding out for some reason. So the 11 take a day or two to talk some sense into number 12. They finally beat him into submission, and the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, the opposite of what everyone was expecting. In Chapman's case, the jury began its deliberation at 1.30. Forty minutes later, they were back. Forty minutes. The jury came back pretty quickly, and I thought, it's going to be a defense verdict. And I remember looking at Justin, and he said, what's it going to be? What's it, what do you think? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to give him hope. I said, just, you know, just sit there and we'll wait and see. State of Georgia versus Justin Wayne Chapman. Um, count one felony murder. Will the jury find the defendant guilty this 29th day of June, 2007? Count two, arson in the first degree. Will the jury find the defendant guilty this 29th day of June, 2007? Judge Michael Murphy then allowed the jurors to remain in the courtroom while he imposed the mandatory sentence of life in prison. All right. Uh, is there anything that you'd, you'd like to say, first of all, Ms. Hankins? Your Honor, I understand the jury has spoken. I understand the court has no discretion in the sentence. That's correct. Anything that you'd like to uh, state at all, Mr. Chapman, to me at this time? That I'm innocent. I didn't know. Did you hear that? That I'm innocent. I didn't do it, he said. Jan Hankins has a number of bad memories from the trial, but this is probably the toughest one. So devastating to me. His son, Austin, who was about six years old at the time of the trial, had testified in the trial. Austin had been with his father the night of the fire when they returned to their home. We had put Austin on the stand, despite knowing it would be traumatic for him, because he could tell the jury, I was with my dad in the van when we came back to our house that night. And when we got to the house, the fire trucks were everywhere. The house was on fire. He was, in effect, a direct alibi witness for his father that when they returned to the house, Justin didn't set the house on fire. It was already on fire. And after the trial, Austin wanted to talk to me. He said, I got up on the stand and I told the truth. And did they convict my daddy because they didn't believe me? That was tough. Hankins had lost, but she wasn't done. She still believed in Chapman's innocence. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. 
no matter who you are, where you're going, or why. With 24 trusted brands to choose from, like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. After the trial, she got the green light to hire an expert to give Chapman a lie detector test. That expert was Richard Ratcliffe, a longtime FBI polygrapher who's now retired. Ratcliffe spent 27 years with the FBI, first as an agent and later as a polygrapher. Over the years, Ratcliffe worked the Atlanta child murders, the mail bomb murder of a federal judge in Alabama, and many other cases. In 1996, by then he was retired from the FBI, Ratcliffe made national headlines when he gave security guard Richard Jewell a lie detector test. Ratcliffe correctly concluded that Jewell was not lying when he said he had nothing to do with the Centennial Olympic Park bombing. All of which is to say, Ratcliffe has been in the thick of numerous high-profile cases. He remembers the call he got from a distraught Jan Hankins. You know, when she talked to me, she just, just felt really almost sick at, at what had happened and felt like she was responsible for not having presented the evidence or not done a good enough job. And so it really bothered her that he had been convicted on that. She never doubted his innocence in her mind. I don't like to leave any doubt, you know, and I'm not naive. So I've been working investigation law enforcement for a long time. I try to cover everything and make sure I don't miss anything. Ratcliffe studied the case file. Then, on two occasions, he drove down to Telfair State Prison where Chapman is incarcerated and administered the lie detector test. We have his full report, including the questions he asked and Chapman's responses, at our website, ajcbreakdown.com. Among the questions, did you set the fire to your home that night? Did you ever tell anyone that you started that fire? His probability of lying about that was less than 1%, and considerably less, like 0.8%, which is really low. So it's very convincing, and it's just very clear indications that he had no involvement in setting the fire. So that's one thing that I leave with uh, in my own mind after evaluating that. Based on an arson and murder charge, absolutely not. I don't think it had anything to do. I'm convinced he had nothing to do with it. The uh, murder and the fire, the arson, even my experience with investigations, the pieces don't fit. In some states, a polygraph is not admissible in court for any reason. In Georgia, it can be admitted if both the prosecution and the defense agree to let it in. But I've never heard of that happening. So even if Chapman had had the test before his trial, the jury probably would never have heard about it. But it may have made the prosecution think twice about its case. In any event, the lie detector test became extremely important in Chapman's bid for a new trial. It may seem kind of strange, but in the state's system, the public defender who handles the trial often is not the same lawyer who handles the appeal. The state brings in someone else for that, It's largely because the appeal very often claims the public defender at trial was ineffective or deficient. The man who got the job on Justin Chapman's appeal was Atlanta lawyer Finn Little. Little once ran for Congress against John Lewis. 
he was beaten soundly, as is everybody who runs against Lewis. While in law school at the University of Georgia, Little attracted attention for a fast food concept that served shark burgers. This is what he told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. My marinade is basically a honey mustard sauce with your basic 17 herbs and spices, just like Colonel Sanders. I keep the recipe locked away in my briefcase. When you marinate and then grill it, shark tastes a lot like chicken, only better. Let's turn to Steve Bright, who lectures on criminal procedure at Yale Law School, for a quick lesson on the importance of Little's first responsibility, filing a motion for a new trial on Chapman's behalf. Right, because after the trial is over, the motion for new trial provides, first of all, an opportunity for the judge to correct any legal errors that may have been made that are brought out on the motion for new trial. But secondly, and most importantly, it gives the court an opportunity to have a hearing and take evidence and decide that if there was some witness who was not presented, uh, who should have been and could not have been located through due diligence, uh, maybe a basis for setting aside the conviction. Uh, if there was the lawyer was not competent in representing the client, didn't have enough time to prepare, didn't put on a defense, wasn't aware of uh, aspects of the case, that may be a basis for setting aside uh, the conviction and having a new trial. Uh, and, of course, that would save the time and expense of an appeal uh, if it's clear that there is a need for, for a new trial. So if Chapman could win the motion for a new trial, that meant his convictions would be thrown out. The prosecution would have to start out all over again, assembling witnesses and rebuilding its case so it could retry Chapman. What if you're the DA and the court orders a new trial, and the assistant DA who handled the original case doesn't work for you anymore? It can be tough to reinvent that wheel, and it looked like this motion for a new trial would be a slam dunk for Finn Little. He had the polygraph from Ratcliffe. He had even convinced the new district attorney, who was not in office when Chapman was convicted, that Chapman deserved a new trial. This was truly extraordinary. This almost never happens, especially in a murder case. Now remember, there's a reason we're calling this podcast Breakdown. The system broke down repeatedly, and this is another one of those breakdowns. Finn Little was appointed to handle Chapman's appeal in 2007. He didn't file Chapman's motion for new trial until three years later. We'll go into more detail on that disaster in a minute. Chapman's motion for a new trial was finally heard on May 25, 2011, by Judge Michael Murphy, the same judge who presided over the trial. But it quickly became obvious in Murphy's court that this was not to be a slam dunk. It was more like a desperation shot from half court that didn't even reach the rim. The district attorney had agreed that Chapman deserved a new trial, but Murphy had a question for the new prosecutor handling the case. Had he read the transcript of Chapman's trial? When the prosecutor said no, Murphy said he was unhappy the state was not arguing in support of the convictions. He said he would read the transcript himself. Instead of just signing off on the motion, Murphy asked for testimony and evidence, which appeared to catch Little completely flat-footed. He didn't expect anything like this. He had Chapman passing the lie detector test. He had the prosecution on his side. He was expecting an agreeable judge in an easy proceeding. Most of what follows comes from a special hearing in December 2013. It was called in part to review Little's handling of the case. Here is John Raines, a member of Chapman's new legal team, asking Little about what transpired at the hearing before Judge Murphy. 
Was there a point during the motion for new trial hearing when it became clear that the court was not going to grant the motion? It should have been. It should have been clear. You just missed it? I missed it. It should have been clear. I should have seen that. I'm sure Finn Little is a fine lawyer. He's handled hundreds of serious felony cases in both state and federal courts. And he's gone to trial dozens of times and won his fair share of verdicts. But his representation of Justin Chapman? It was a train wreck. I'm going to go over all the things that went wrong. It's a list that grows more painful as it grows longer. And it grows a lot longer. Reigns asks, can you tell the court what you did to prepare for that hearing? Well, sometime prior to that hearing, I'd had discussions with the district attorney and made him aware of the fact that Mr. Chapman had passed the polygraph and we talked about some other matter, just how weak the evidence in general was. And he basically agreed that he thought it needed a new trial as well. But as far as subpoenaing a lot of witnesses or anything like that, it was, in, in my opinion, was, it was pretty much a consent motion by that time. So you didn't prepare for a hearing? No, not, not. Maybe it's not a surprise that Little was not prepared. After all, like I said, the other side had agreed with him, but... Remember how Jan Hankins wasn't ready to go to trial and wouldn't ask the judge for a continuance? Well, you know what happened. She went to trial and lost. So here we go again. Finn Little apparently wasn't ready and could have asked for a continuance too, but he didn't. And so he started to make mistakes, like this one. During one early exchange, Judge Murphy asked Little if Chapman's landlord had been called as a witness at the trial. No, he was not called, Little replied. Well. I wasn't at Chapman's trial, but I've read the transcript, and I know for a fact that Chapman's landlord was actually a landlady, and I know she was the first witness to testify at the trial. Well, Chapman knew this too, of course. He was there. So he spoke up and corrected his own lawyer. Yes, the landlady testified, he told Judge Murphy. Murphy then asked Little if he had read the trial transcript. It wasn't the last time Little would hear that question. Two years later, Little would be called to testify about his work, or lack of work, in the Chapman case. It was at this moment that Finn Little fell on his sword. And that's what lawyers call it. Let's say you're an attorney. You represented a guy in an important appeal and you lost. Now you're in a hearing to talk about how you handled the case. And the lawyers are beating you up pretty badly on the stand, but you don't really defend yourself. Instead, you freely admit to mistakes and you won't say anything that might jeopardize your client. This is falling on your sword. You take the hit in the hope that the case goes your client's way. And you can imagine, that's not easy. You take the stand and submit to a withering attack on your professionalism. You can also imagine that not every lawyer would fall on his sword, but Little did. Chapman's new lawyer, John Raines, asked Little the same question posed by Judge Murphy. Did you read the transcript of the trial? I only skimmed the trial's transcript. Little said he assigned the actual reading of it to someone else. I also had a law student from Georgia State University to assist me on legal analysis and drafting. The law student read the transcript of Mr. Chapman's trial for me, took notes from my review, and I prepared a draft of the motion for new trial. So you really only skimmed Mr. Chapman's trial transcript? Right. I, 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 I don't, didn't mean for any misunderstanding. I read the whole thing. But in the, the course of um, 
the law students review, he would highlight different parts. And I, so when I was reading all the words, I was going fast. And when I got to a point where he paid him, where he had highlighted, I paid much more close attention. That's how I would go through the, the transcripts. So that's why skimmed is, is accurate because you read the words, but not there's a difference between reading with focus and, and just reading and make sure to kind of a proofread kind of. So you would say you proofread Mr. Chapman's no, transcript? No, I just skimmed through it. Skimmed is the accurate word. Raines then asks Little what the law student had done in his review of the transcript. Usually he would put tabs. Every once in a while he might underline something, but, but most of the time he would use little stickers and put on the, the outside, you know, with, with different issues he thought might be there or things that didn't make sense of, of uh, any kind of testimony that he thought there might be a problem with, stuff that didn't make sense or didn't, didn't click right as far as uh, what we saw as, as the testimony that was in the transcript. Do you recall how many flags uh, the law student you retained in connection with Mr. Chapman's case put on that transcript? I don't recall. Um, it wouldn't have been a large, large number. Can you be a little clearer about what a large number would be? It was probably less than 10. Steve Bright, the Yale Law School professor, couldn't believe this was how Chapman's case was handled. Well, it's a disgrace. I mean, he didn't even read the transcript of the trial. This is a murder case. I mean, this is a man's life in prison. And he delegated that to a law student to review that and, and as he said, underline some portions of it. And, uh, I mean, he just absolutely failed to do what a lawyer should do to prepare for a motion for new trial. Not surprisingly, Judge Murphy ruled that Finn Little had provided insufficient grounds for a new trial for Justin Chapman. The slam dunk had turned into a slam door. Finn Little has told me he cannot talk about Chapman's case. I wish he would, but I understand why he's reluctant to do so. Last year, Chapman, represented by a private attorney, filed a lawsuit against Finn Little. It claims if Little had done his job, Chapman would no longer be in prison. Little already endured the painful experience of being called out for neglecting Chapman's appeal. Remember, that's when he fell on his sword. And during that testimony, Little also said that the pay from the state's public defender system for Chapman's appeal was so lousy, he figured he received the equivalent of 15 to $20 an hour. Nevertheless, he continued representing Chapman. Of course, representing Chapman didn't actually mean going to see him or talk to him. Here's Raines questioning Little again. Did you go meet uh, Mr. Chapman after your appointment uh, where he was incarcerated? I did not meet him face-to-face until right before the actual motion for new trial here. We'd exchanged some correspondence both through his father, um, through Jan Hankins, and, and, and some mail and whatnot. But, but I had not physically met Mr. Chapman. Raines asks Little if he reviewed the file of Chapman's case compiled by Hankins. It would have been perfunctory, Little said. Did you read the prosecution's case file on Chapman? No, Little says. Did you read the interviews of Joe White or Gary Allen Stroop? No. Did you read the interviews of any other witnesses? No. Did you talk to Jan Hankins about any of those interviews? No. Did you interview any of the witnesses yourself? No. Did you do any investigation on the case from the time you were appointed in 2007 
to the beginning of 2011. No, Raines then hands Little the motion for new trial he filed on Chapman's behalf. Will you read the first sentence of the brief? This case comes before the Court of Appeals on the denial of appellant's, appellant's motion for new trial. Did you hear that? Little's brief said he was before the Court of Appeals in Atlanta, but he wasn't in the Court of Appeals or anywhere near it. He was in Judge Murphy's Superior Court in Buchanan. And his brief also says his motion for new trial had been denied. But of course, it hadn't been denied. Yet. I can only imagine what Judge Murphy must have been thinking when he read that. And we're not finished. Raines then pointed to the content of Little's motion. In it, Little cited two pages in the trial transcript to show that Chapman's attorney, Jan Hankins, did not perform competently. Those were transcript pages 178 and 226. Would you expect those page numbers to support the argument you've made in the preceding sentence? Sure. Raines asks Little to read the pages, whereupon Little is forced to admit that neither page contains any evidence backing up his claim that Hankins was incompetent. There's also the important issue of Chapman's alibi. Will you read that sentence report? Defense counsel also failed to investigate Mr. Chapman's alibi. So that was one of the grounds you raised for ineffectiveness by trial counsel? Yes. Now, of course you remember at the trial, Jan Hankins called upon Chapman's son Austin, his wife Christy, and Brandy Hughes as alibi witnesses. I know. This is really bad. Through his following questions, Raines then establishes that Little used a brief that he filed for another client as a template for Chapman's brief. Some of the claims Little apparently raised for the other client apparently made their way over into Chapman's motion. But if Little had closely read over the final brief he filed on Chapman's behalf, and if he'd been aware of all the testimony at Chapman's trial, he likely would have caught all these mistakes. Errors like these rarely happen to this degree in criminal appeals, but they do happen. Attorneys often use boilerplate motions as starting points and copy-and-paste language from one case into another. An incorrect name or a date can wind up in the wrong place. In the law, they're often referred to as Scrivener's errors. But it's sad to see them in cases of such magnitude. There's one case I'll never forget. Lawrence Jefferson sits on death row for killing his supervisor at a Cobb County construction site. A Georgia judge overseeing his case asked a member of the state attorney general's office to prepare an order he could sign to reject Jefferson's appeal. The state attorney submitted a 45-page order, which the judge signed without changing a single word. What's disturbing is that neither the judge nor the state attorney apparently read over the final draft of the proposed order. Words like constitutionally, remarks, crimes, and battery, they were misspelled. Really? Constitutionally misspelled in a legal motion? Even more alarming was that the order referred to a sworn statement given by a lawyer that was never put into evidence in the case, probably because it came from another case the state attorney was handling. That order was signed in 1992. But 18 years later, the U.S. Supreme Court expressed concern about how it was handled and halted Jefferson's execution. If the order hadn't been botched, Jefferson would have been put to death years ago. Instead, that slipshod legal work has meant that he remains very much alive today. Okay, back to Chapman. 
Finn Little made so many mistakes in the filing for a new trial that it's hard to count them. He named the wrong court. He cited the wrong transcript. He completely missed the alibi testimony. In his final order, Judge Murphy took a swipe at Little's contention that Hankins had failed to investigate Chapman's alibi. The judge made note of all the witnesses Hankin relied upon for this line of defense. And if the jury believed these witnesses, Murphy said, it could have found Chapman had not set the fire. Murphy apparently didn't even think much of the lie detector test Chapman had passed. In his order, the judge noted that Chapman had nothing to lose and potentially everything to gain by taking the lie detector test after he was already convicted and sent to prison. So I asked Ratcliffe about this. Is there a difference if somebody was to take a polygraph before trial knowing that the results could be admitted at trial as opposed to after that's, trial? That's a Murphy opinion. Everybody's got their own opinions. Basically, if you're lying, you're lying. I realize I have my own limitations of whether I know somebody's lying or not. But I had to learn that the polygraph doesn't have any choice. When you lie, it shows. When you don't, it doesn't. If you do it properly, it's going to indicate deception. So if you're lying... Your body and the way we're made doesn't allow you to control those functions to not show deception. After Murphy rejected Chapman's bid for a new trial, Little appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court. And you know how that's going to turn out. Little's main argument was that Jan Hankins' performance at trial was so deficient that Chapman deserved a new one. But the law requires evidence. What were Hankins' deficiencies? And why did they result in Chapman losing the case? And if Hankins had not been so deficient, Is it likely that Chapman would not have been convicted? Well, because Little had been caught flat-footed before Murphy and put up hardly any evidence during that hearing, there was no way he could convince the Supreme Court there would have been a different outcome at trial. Here's Steve Bright, the Yale Law School professor again. Well, courts can only deal with the facts that are put before them, and this is where the lawyers who represent people accused of crimes are so important because if they don't do the investigation and if they don't put those facts on, then those facts might as well not exist because the courts never know about them. And the courts certainly don't go out and do investigations. The courts just simply take what the lawyers give them and then make decisions based upon what evidence has been presented. Little argued the case before Georgia's highest court on January 12, 2012. The court did not take long to make up its mind. Its unanimous decision rejecting Chapman's appeal was issued just seven weeks later. Jan Hankins explains the dire situation Chapman was now in. Eventually, unfortunately, the conviction was affirmed in the Supreme Court of Georgia. At that point in Georgia, you no longer have the right to appointed counsel. Your next step, if you want to challenge the circumstances of your confinement is to file a habeas corpus action. It's a civil action, no right to counsel. So I had been working earlier that year with a lot of the pro bono partners in several of the large Atlanta firms. A lot of them, you know, they, they listened. I said, I'd send emails and say, I've got this client. He's innocent. Please, as a favor to me, take this case. And they would say, well, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll get back to you. But no one ever took it. I went to Many prominent defense attorneys, private attorneys, please help me with this habeas. I went to various organizations in the state of Georgia that handle habeas petitions for clients. No one took the case. Finally, one day while attending a state bar meeting, Hankins came across Mike Kaplan, a lawyer from one of Atlanta's top law firms. I was desperate, and I said, 
you know, Mike, I need a habeas lawyer for this guy. Do you know anybody that might help? He said, well, do you know, send me some information. I said, I swear this guy's innocent. He needs help. He said, you know, send me some papers. And he called me up. I remember him saying, how sure are you on a scale of 1 to 10 that this guy is innocent? I said, 11. He's kind of quiet. And he took it. On the next episode of Breakdown, Justin Chapman catches a break. A top-notch new legal team forms for free. And two retired FBI agents join as investigators. The two retired FBI guys? These are guys you're going to want to meet. Joe White, the state's star witness, said this happened, and, and, and this guy named Billy Liner was there. We talked to Billy Liner, you heard him. He said, absolutely not, it didn't happen, never happened. So that, that calls into question Joe White's credibility as a witness. Please go to AJCBreakdown.com for photos of the cast of characters, a timeline, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capaluto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Burt Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,